0: Hi, my name is Preston, and I'm one of the pastors here at St. Pete's. A big welcome to you today. Thank you so much for joining us to worship our God together in this online space. Wherever you are physically today, whether at home or riding in your car, we're really glad that you took some time to study God's Word with us today. If this is your first time joining us in worship lately, whether your first time ever or you just haven't been around for a couple weeks, know that we are slowly going through the beginning chapters of Luke's gospel right now. So if you haven't been with us for a couple weeks, we're still in chapter 1, but we're about to finish it up. This is our last Sunday on chapter 1. Last week, Lloyd preached about the birth of John the Baptist. And today, we'll listen to Zachariah's song. Zachariah is John's father, and this is his song of response, of praise and prophecy to the birth of his son after he hasn't spoken for months. His name is John, is what Zachariah wrote down on a tablet when he was asked what to name his boy. And they all wondered at this, Luke writes. They all wondered, I think, because Elizabeth the mother and Zachariah, the father hadn't spoken in nine months to one another, yet they were on the same page for this unusual name of their son, John. Really? Zechariah wants to name him John, too? But that's exactly what happened. And and again, last week, Lloyd helped us see the significance of this naming, that Zechariah had done a lot of thinking in his nine months of silence, and he'd come to terms with the fact that his son belonged first to the Lord, and in the Lord's hands was the safest and best place for his son to be. But he still hadn't spoken audibly In nine months. This was writing it down. He wrote down his name was John. He hadn't said anything. Can you imagine that? Being totally quiet, not saying one word in nine months. For Zechariah, the last thing he had said wasn't his best moment either. If you remember, it was when Gabriel, the angel, showed up in the temple and told him the crazy news that his his wife, Elizabeth, in her older age, was going to have a baby. In that moment, Zechariah doubted. How could this be, he said. And then he had to sit on that. He had to sit in silence and think about that for nine months. But also remember that Luke has told us about Zachariah's character. He's a righteous man. He walks blamelessly before the Lord. He's the sort of guy that you want speaking and leading in your community. He's that old guy who you would love to be your mentor. Sure, he's not perfect, but this makes him that, that much more relatable for me, I think. Yes, Zechariah doubted Gabriel. But, I mean, I can't say what I would have done either if an angel had appeared to me. I mean, yes, I'd like to think that I would have believed what the angel said, but Luke doesn't exactly tell us what Gabriel looked like, or whether he had wings or was glowing or was like one of those chunky little cherub baby angels. I don't think that was the case, that, but you know the common picture. So you see, Gabriel doesn't tell Zechariah he's an angel either. We only know that from Luke's commentary. So we don't really know whether Gabriel looked like whatever pops into your mind when you think of angel, or whatever pops into my mind, or whether he just blended in angels in the outfield style. But regardless, Zechariah is taken off guard, he doubts Gabriel, he has doubts sometimes, even though he's a priest in the temple. And again, that gives me some comfort too. I'm a priest. I have doubts sometimes. And so I can relate with Zechariah. But Zechariah isn't defined by his doubt. And we're going to see that and how he responds in this next part of the story. Now, Zechariah has been silent for nine months during the entire pregnancy of his wife, Elizabeth without the burden to comment on it. Now, I know it would be hard to be silent for, for nine months, but in some ways, I think it could have some silver linings, too. I mean, my wife has gone through two pregnancies, and there were many times during those pregnancies where I made some very unhelpful comments. So I do see a silver lining for Zachariah. But at any rate, Zechariah is clearly curious about what's going on and he's been silently piecing together in his mind all the events taking place around him. He has those words of Gabriel in his mind. Your son is going to be named John. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Lord, he'll, the Lord will be with him, just like with Elijah. And he's going to get the people ready. He's also heard the news from Mary, if we can assume that his wife Elizabeth had shared everything that cousin Mary had told her when they met together to celebrate their pregnancies. So he knows that Mary's boy will be God's son of David's line, holy, and that his kingdom will last forever. Now his son is born and he scribbles on that tablet, his name is John, and then something amazing happens. He feels something going on in his mouth. He feels all of a sudden that he can speak again. Luke describes it like this. He says his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God. Now, what did he say after not being able to speak for so long? What would you say? It's a significant moment. It really is. Kind of like when Neil Armstrong stepped onto the moon and said the first words of humanity from the moon. It's very memorable. Don't mess it up, Neil. He did a good job. I also think of a member of our church a couple years ago during Lent who took a vow of silence. She didn't speak for 40 days. She carried around paper and wrote notes to people to communicate. It was really incredible. And I know by day 38 or 39, it was heavy on her mind. What am I going to say? What are those first words going to be out of my mouth? Well, Luke records it for us. And it's called Zachariah's Song or Zachariah's Prophecy. And it's our scripture reading today that you, that you just heard. And as we get into the song, I first want to point out a pattern in Luke chapter 1. Gabriel, the angel, met with Zechariah, the priest in the temple. His response was doubt. Gabriel, the angel, met with Mary, remember the girl in the country. Her response was belief. Mary then sings a song of praise after sharing the good news that's been shared with her to Elizabeth. Zechariah then sings his song of praise after sharing the good news that's been given to him. His son's name is John. Praise and joy overflowing from them when they share the good news that's been given to them. You see, Mary's song that Alistair looked at a couple weeks ago moved from her moment of overflowing joy. My soul magnifies the Lord and it pans out into a big picture of what God's doing in the world. Zechariah goes the other way around. He starts celebrating God's big story, and then he prophesies specifically about his son John and his nephew to be Jesus. If you don't know what I mean by prophecy, don't worry, we'll get to that. But first, celebration and praise is what comes out of his mouth. So let's see what those first words are after nine months of silence. Look at verses 67 to 75. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Well, two things. One, Zechariah clearly isn't doubting Gabriel anymore. After those, after those long months of sitting on it, he's landed back in the right place and his act of praise and worship shows a resilient faith. And two, this will take a little bit more work and a lot of our focus today, we have to ask, what, ex- what exactly is Zachariah talking about? He makes several references in this moment of praise that really don't make sense without some context, almost as if we're listening in on a story midway through. And the truth is, That's exactly what's happening. And this really matters for Zechariah's song and for the entire Gospel of Luke. If we want to understand what Luke has written, we have to know that we're jumping in on a story that has begun a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Well, no, not really. The story did begin, begin a long time ago, Um, But I've been doing a lot of reading lately about space travel and galaxies far, far away because my four-year-old is now fascinated with space, and I still can't make any comments on whether God started in the Milky Way or another galaxy. I'm just not sure. But we still must grasp that Luke writes his story as a continuation of a much larger story. If you take Luke's gospel on its own, if you just pick it up and you have no idea what it's coming into, it's still brilliant. You will you can still meet Jesus and encounter some amazing truths about the world, about yourself, about who God is. But it's sort of like picking up C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, which is the last of his Chronicles of Narnia series, without having the background of reading the six books before it. Or it's like jumping in on the Super Bowl or some other great sports event with The score tied, and only two minutes to go. It's exciting, and you're going to enjoy it, no doubt, but but there's more to the story that you've missed. And if you were to pick up Lewis's last book on its own and read it and then meet with someone else who is a true Narnia fan, who is committed to reading all the books and knowing all about the story, you can imagine how they might respond to you. No, you can't do it that way. You've missed so much of the story. You don't really know the characters. You don't know the plot or the background or the ups and downs. You've missed so much. The reader, like me as a young child, who journeys through all these seven tales, alongside the children turned kings and queens of Car have a different experience with the story's ending than the person who picked up the last book and read it first. You see, Luke's volume is the climax to the story of all that God is doing in the world, from the very beginning, all the way to the very end. It's the high point. It's the story that John three sixteen sums up: for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him, will ha- will not perish but have eternal life. But that's getting a little bit ahead of where we are now. Specifically, Luke's gospel is the climax to the Old Testament story in the Bible. And if you don't know much about that story, you're gonna be a little lost in Zechariah's song and what he's singing about. And even if you're familiar with that story, you may miss some of it. And notice Zechariah mentions two people. He mentions David and Abraham. So I briefly wanna fit those two characters into their place in the big story, the story of God, so that we get in on a little bit more of Zechariah's excitement. So where do they fit? Abraham first, because he comes first. Well, as I said, the story starts a long, long time ago. Back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we read about God creating. God creates a good world. He fashions a temple for his presence to dwell. He creates people, men and women, in his own image. And he puts them in his temple for him to love, for him to be in relationship with. In Genesis 3, the next chapter of this story, we see disruption enter this good creation. We see self-interest, blame, accusation, and everything starts to go downhill. Sin enters the story and things get broken. Between people and God, between people and one another, between people and the world around them, and even between people and themselves. Well, after this, Genesis 3 to 11 is the story of just things really unraveling and going sideways. I mean, it gets worse and worse, and it gets pretty bad really quickly. And then at the end of chapter 11, we're introduced to a character. His name is Abram, or later Abraham. He's a descendant of Adam, and at this point, that's all we know in the story. And then in Genesis 12 the whole story changes. The whole story pivots and shifts. And Genesis 12, 1-3 to says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, In him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is God's plan to choose Abraham, to bless him, and to fix all that's been broken in the world through his special relationship with Abraham and his children and all of his descendants. To fix the brokenness remembered between God and people, between people and one another, between people and the earth, and between people and themselves. This is the story of the rest of the Old Testament. God loving Israel, trying to teach them how to live in a way that receives his blessing and then pours it out on the rest of the world so that all the nations, again, will be blessed. That's what the Old Testament is about. Did you know that? I know many people struggle with the Old Testament and think it is all about God's anger and wrath and then the New Testament is just all about God's love. It's really not a helpful or true dichotomy. The Old Testament does have a lot of crazy twists and turns and strange stories. There's no doubt about that. And how God relates to people is often very confusing and foreign to our ears. But this promise is the plot line to follow. It's what helps us through. And this promise to Abraham is what Zechariah remembers and is celebrating in the song. It is still the plot line of Zechariah's life, living under Roman rule thousands of years after Abraham. God will be faithful, God will bless us, and through us, the whole world. And somehow, Zechariah is figuring out that the birth of John, his son, and Mary's boy, who's going to be named Jesus, he senses in his inner being that these two boys are going to be tied to this amazing plan. Well, what about David? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, sings Zechariah. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Well, generations after Abraham, when Israel had become established as a nation and when they had kings, David was the king. David was the one you remembered. Sort of like Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, sort of like Caesar in Rome, David was the one. David was the key. In 2 Samuel 7, God made a promise to David that layered then on top of this promise God had made to Abraham way back when. This is what God promised King David. It's quite simple Your kingdom will rule forever, forever, for all time. So to Abraham, God had promised, I will bless you and your descendants, and all the earth will be blessed through you. And to King David, Your kingdom will be blessed and it will rule forever. See, these were the promises that Zechariah lived with in hope because in his time it certainly didn't seem as if he were blessed or as if the nation of Israel was blessed. Or even that the house of David would ever be ruling again. Caesar Augustus was king and lord. Many people thought he was even God. How will creation be restored? Can healing really come to fix that brokenness between God and people, between people and one another, between people and creation, and between people and themselves? And through Abraham's descendants, that small nation on the eastern side of the Mediterranean, ruled by Roman overlords, pretty insignificant. This is where Luke jumps in and starts writing his story, the climax of the great story. Gabriel appears to Zechariah and Mary, the announcement of two boys to be born, John to be a prophet, and Jesus, from David's line, the very son of God. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, Zechariah thought. Maybe this is the time. When God was going to show up, when he was going to make good on these promises, when he was going to do something new. And when Zechariah's mouth opened, and he's filled with the Spirit, and he begins to sing, this is exactly what we hear that he's hoping for. Let me show you in verses 68 to 75 again. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he's visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us, in the house of his servant David, horn of salvation is just an ancient way of saying a strong deliverer or a rescuer coming to save the day. But in the house of David, as he spoke by the mouth of the prophets from of old that we should be saved from our, from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his covenant The oath that he swore to our father Abraham, that's that promise, to grant us that we, being delivered from our enemies, might serve him in righteousness and holiness. So let's bring all these threads together. The oath God had swore to Abraham, the promise of a never-ending kingdom to David. Zechariah is thinking, I think, I think these are being fulfilled and I... Zechariah just might be living in the days when we finally get to live in this holiness and righteousness that ends up blessing the whole earth. And my son, John, and my nephew-to-be, I think they got something to do with it. John and Jesus, these two boys, they're born into this great story. Their stories make sense. And have meaning as part and only as part of this larger story. Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story, which many of you know and are familiar with. It only has meaning. It has all of his purpose as part of this larger story of what God was doing. Their stories only make sense. as fulfilling God's ancient plan. They aren't off doing their own thing. They're being brought in. And they're fulfilling and they're finding the climax of what God has planned from way back at the beginning of creation. Well, Zechariah at this point shifts his attention to those two boys. The Holy Spirit has shown him that God's doing something new and he's realized, you know, his family seems to be right in the thick of it. Let's look at verses 76 to 79. He almost turns and looks at his boy, John, and you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. John will come first to prepare the way for Jesus by preaching forgiveness of sins. And when we get to chapter 3 later on, you'll see that John does this. He's a firebrand. If anyone doesn't know how their relationships with God and others in the world and themselves is broken, John makes very clear just how, and he tells them, so John will prepare the way. He'll till the soil. Then after John, then Jesus comes. And the Holy Spirit in this moment gives Zachariah an image, a prophetic image of Jesus. And when I say prophecy or prophetic image, I really mean the ability to see the world, to see what's going on from God's point of view instead of from, from a person's. So he's getting just a little bit better of a glimpse from God's eyes of what's about to happen. And it's, it's vague. It's almost like an Impressionist painting. See, we don't learn exactly how salvation is going to come here, but we are assured that God is on the move and something beautiful is going to happen. This is what he says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, which is a phrase used all throughout the Old Testament story to describe God's love and care for his people. Because of the tender mercy of our God, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. We're going to be a light and blessing to every nation on earth, just like God promised Abraham, when this sunlight comes and illuminates the present darkness. Now, As you know, we're doing a series on the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to hear a lot about Jesus in the coming weeks. His story, his teaching, his actions, his passion, his resurrection. We're going to hear it all. So, as we conclude this first chapter of Luke, before Jesus formally enters the scene in chapter 2, I don't want to jump too quickly past what God is doing in Zechariah's heart. Let's just pause and sit with that image the Holy Spirit gives to Zechariah that he offers to us. Again, the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. As soon as I read that, it reminded me of another prophetic passage in Micah chapter 7, verse 8, where Micah writes, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Micah, and Zechariah affirm something that we all know. There are times that you and that I sit in darkness. And if you follow Jesus, you know that you don't get excluded from this. There's times where you sit in darkness too. But what can and does happen is that into darkness, into moments of darkness into a dark world that Zechariah lived in under bleak Roman rule. The Holy Spirit speaks. God comes in and acts. The living God enters in. And the living God gave Micah an image of God's light penetrating darkness. The living God gave Zechariah in his silence an image of Jesus, sunrise on those sitting in darkness. The living God has given me these sorts of images and visions in times of darkness, too. But hear me on that. The good news of this grand story that I've taken a lot of time to walk through today, the story Luke is writing the best chapter of, and the story that Zechariah is living in and realizing he's right in the thick of, is that this light coming into darkness is a prophecy true for you, too. And it doesn't take a moment. It doesn't take a vision for this to happen. It takes opening our hands and receiving and entering into the story. Because while your story matters in this, and we say that a lot at St. Pete's, we want to be seen and known. We want to hear your story. We want to share our stories. Your story matters, and my story matters. But the thing is, it's not the most important story either, and we need to know that too. This story that we've been telling is the most important story that makes sense of all the others. We can't get that the other way around. Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes it like this. I love this. He says, It is not in our life that God's help and presence must still be proved but rather God's presence and help have already been demonstrated for us in the life of Jesus Christ. It is in fact more important for us to know what God did to Israel, to his son Jesus Christ, than to seek what God intends for us today. I find no salvation in my life history, but only in the history of Jesus Christ. Only one who allows themselves to be found in Jesus Christ And his incarnation, his cross, and his resurrection is with God and God with them. Again, your story matters, but it does not matter as much as God's story because you won't find salvation in your own story, in your own life. It's not there. You will only find salvation by turning and moving into and knowing this story of Jesus Christ who has been given for you and offers his life and his story for yours and for the life of the world.